We need a new leadership model in business today, one that values people and results, where leaders see their role as serving instead of being served. Each month, my friend and colleague, Chad Gordon, interviews a different author who helps us explore what we call people-centered leadership. I know you'll be encouraged and inspired by what you hear when you'll walk away with ideas and insights that will help you be the type of leader others want to follow. Ready to get started? I'll be back at the end of the interview where I'll share what I learned and how I'll be putting these ideas into action. Now enjoy this month's installment of the Blanchard Leader Chat Podcast. In a perfect world, we're all living our passions at the top of our game. Imagine that, living a life of mastery, the ultimate in self-leadership. Our guest today knows a bit about that. New York Times bestselling author Robert Greene joins us today. Welcome to the Leader Chat Podcast. Thank you for having me, Chad. Thanks. Now, you have written several books, including The 48 Laws of Power, fabulous book, The 33 Strategies of War, The Art of Seduction. But today we're going to be focusing really deeply on your book, Mastery. What drew you to that subject? Well, I think there's a deficiency in the world. I think people have misconceptions about what it takes to be successful uh, and to have a fulfilling life. Um, a lot of that, some of it comes from technology, and we, we've become lazier, and we think that uh, we should be entitled to have uh, a good life and to have power and success, and we're not very patient. We, we feel like just a few clicks, and we can get the kind of information um, that we want, and sort of a disconnect in general that a lot of people have between the process of mastering a field. A lot of people don't are not aware of the incredible powers that can accrue to the human brain when you go through that proverbial 10,000 hours. But you need patience, and you need a vision, and you need a resolution. You need to be able to stay on the course. And these are things that I think people have lost. They've lost a deep connection to the process of mastering a field. And I was worried about it. I mean, if in 10 years that happens, bridges are going to fall down. People won't know how to build a house properly. They don't know how to write a book well. They don't know how to make things. So it, uh, the book kind of came out of some, some concerns for the future. So I want to dig a little bit deeper into that. So part of that is, you know, the world is different now. And so therefore, the the, the way that people learned is different. And, and you're right, the kind of that just in time, we can be a master of everything very quickly with Google. Uh, but, you know, when somebody is looking at their path and they want to find kind of they want to they want to be the master in a field. Do you think that it's society more than everything that, that holds them back? Or is there something innate internal that's holding them back? Or is it just a collection of both things? Well, it's a, probably a connection of both things. You have to kind of swim against the tide. A lot of people now, it's we're more geared towards immediate pleasures, uh, a video game, a movie, something you know that we can get access to quickly on the, our phones. And it's always been the case that the human is attracted to kind of immediate gratification. So the process of mastery is actually mastering yourself. Mastering your impatience, mastering all the emotions that you can't control, mastering this desire for immediate things to, that you that you want or desire, and um, 
So, in, in, you know, yes, yeah, society provides uh, some obstacles in your path, um, but really it's you. You are the problem. Um, and y- you need to look squarely in the mi- mirror and realize uh, that you need discipline in your life. You've got some bad habits. I'm not talking about this in a judgmental way. Because I'm the same. I, I was an unruly teenager. I had my problems in my 20s. I had them going into my 30s. I probably still have them. So there's no judgment on it. And all of the great masters, the people you in the audience respect, the great athletes that you admire, uh, people who really succeed in business, you don't realize it, but it took years and years of hard work, of grinding, of overcoming failure, of overcoming themselves. So um, really the problem is, is you and your emotional nature and the fact that you need to kind of discipline yourself. Now you, and I think you're a great example of that, uh, take a really quick step back. So we've all you know, been in the garage, I'm going to, in a weird analogy here, and had somebody who's never picked up a ping pong paddle and beats you. Like there's just certain people that are like, wow, they're just born to do that. You have really struck gold with these books and been very successful, but knowing your journey, tell us a little bit about that. This didn't, this wasn't immediate. You actually had to find your way. Yeah, very much so. And I kind of use it as a paradigm for a lot of people, particularly young people in this world today. I, I knew over a very early age I wanted to be a writer, probably when I was eight years old. Also knew I had a great interest in strategy and strategic thinking from very early on. And as I got older, as I finished college, I couldn't figure out what kind of writing I should do. So I went on this journey uh, that probably lasted a good 14 years, I'd say. I tried journalism, living in New York. I didn't really like that. I thought I would write novels. I wandered around Europe for several years writing novels. That didn't really work out. I came back to Los Angeles, where I'm from, and I got into Hollywood and worked in um, screenwriting, and that wasn't a good fit. And I was looking at myself in the mirror at the age of 35, maybe 36, and I wasn't really adding up to something, and my parents were probably a little bit worried about me. I had a lot of life experience, many different jobs, all kinds of cultures, lots of rich experience, lots of experience in writing in all these different forms, but nothing came together and it was very frustrating. And I met a man one day on a job I had in Italy um, and he asked me, he was a book packager, a man who produces books, and he said, Robert, do you have any ideas for a book? And suddenly I just sort of improvised this idea about power which was, it was just sort of, I don't know, um, it was inside me yeah. for some reason. And um, I just sort of, it just spewed out of me. Here's, here's an idea about power. And he got very excited. And he said uh, he would pay me to live while I wrote half the book. And then he would try and sell it and we'd be partners in it. And the, the moral of the story was, uh, well, first, I was so desperate uh, that I gave that first book, The 48 Laws of Power, 200%, you know, to use the cliche of everything I had. I just, it was like, I call it death ground strategy. It was either make this book succeed or I'm probably going to fail in life. And also, all that experience that I had accumulated um, was now the, the fertile soil that would allow me to, first of all, draw on that experience to write this book. But also, I had the discipline. I knew how to meet a deadline. I knew how to spend every day writing. I had the patience to be alone. And so the moral of the story is 
you may not know exactly what you were intended to do in life. It's good to have a, a general idea, like I had writing. Maybe it's music. Maybe it's sports. Maybe it's business. And in your 20s, it's fine to experiment. It's good to have adventures. It's good to try different things out to see what works, what doesn't work. But the key to it is to be accumulating skills in life. This is the future. We're going to be a skilled-based economy. People who have unique skills, and I'm not just talking about one skill. I'm talking about five or six or ten real skills are going to be in the maximum position to combine them into something interesting. So I had skills in writing. I had skills in uh, research. I had skills in writing stories and being and putting them in a dramatic form. I had experience in power and seeing all these different relationships and all the different jobs I had. So I had four or five big skills to draw upon. That's what you want. You want to accumulate skills in your 20s so that when you reach that prime age for being creative and making something good, which is really your early 30s, basically by all the science involved in this, you're ready. You're ready for some breakthrough. And just as I had the good luck to meet this man who suddenly one day asked me for a book, a book idea, something will happen. Well, there'll be serendipity. Something will come across your path and you will have this skill set to do something really, uh, really creative. And I know uh, there's probably a lot of listeners right now that are thinking about maybe moments that have passed them by. So how do you know, what if you are in that job that you're, you're not, you know, you don't want to be a master of that job. You're kind of going through that motion. Is, is there any secret to, to being able to take a step back? Because not everybody has the luxury of traveling Europe and, and taking that extra time if they're later on in their career. So what is some other steps to take to kind of, you know, to focus on well, your life I, calling uh, if you have an idea? I, I didn't have a luxury. I was oh, very poor, poor when I was in, in Europe. I worked, I worked in construction. I worked in a hotel. I, I taught. I didn't. You know, I had I lived hand to mouth, really, essentially. Yeah. It wasn't, it wasn't the, uh, but, um, yeah, it's a very good question. It all depends on where you are in life. Um, there's no cookie cutter formula for this. If you're in your 40s, it's going to be different than when you're in your 30s. The main thing that connects them all is you have to have self-awareness. You have to know what you were intended for. And I make a very big point in my book to look at your life and to say that you were born with a particular task. This isn't something spiritual. It's very practical. You're, there's something unique about you. Your experiences in life are unique, but your DNA is unique. Your brain is wired in a unique way. And if you look at all the people who are successful, and I mean really successful in life, they're you can't replace them. They're one of a kind. They're unique. Well, you have that as well. But because you've listened to other people, you've listened to your parents, you listen to your friends, you've kind of lost it and you wandered into careers that are not in your wheelhouse. They're not what you were meant to do. You don't realize it until you're 32 or 35 or even in your 40s. And what you need to do at such points is, first of all, take a step back. It's not like you're going to suddenly quit your job and become a rock star or write poetry. You've right. got it practical. You've got a family to feed, perhaps, whatever. But you have to somehow realize that you're going to make a change. It's not a radical change. I don't believe in radical changes. You're going to change the course, of the direction that you're headed in, but as gently as possible. And what you're going to do is, okay, I got into law, and then I realized I'm 32, and it's very lucrative, but 
man, it just doesn't connect to me. I, it, I don't feel it, and I'm burning out. Okay, what is it that I connect to? You've got to go through that process. If you don't, then then my book or anything is kind of useless. Yeah. Because the brain, you don't learn well, and you don't become skilled at something unless your emotions are engaged. So you step back, you decide what that is. You said, you know, really, I I love music. I should have been in. I should have gotten into music, but mm. it's too late to be a singer or to change your career to that. So you think of well, maybe I'm going to segue into a law my law career into as a music lawyer, as an entertainment mm. lawyer. I mean, it's just an example. Yeah. But there are other ways where you're going to slowly make an adjustment, and that might require in your extra time, not quitting your job, but going back to school and night school and, and learning something else. Or it could come to, in your spare time, doing the homework and figuring it out. And basically, you have a plan. And you say, all right, in two years, I'm going to quit this job. Whatever is practical. Yeah. And that alone, that realization, is going to lift your spirits. Okay, I've got a plan. The worst thing in life is you have no idea where you're going, and you have no plan of how to get out of the hole you've dug yourself into. Just saying, in this time, I'm going to quit my job, and I'm going to make this next step is just so liberating. Now you've committed into yourself, and it's good to tell someone else. It's good to tell your wife, your husband, your whomever, yeah. I'm doing this. So you look like a fool if you don't. You commit to it. And then you make a plan, and you're gentle with it. You don't do radical things because you're just going to set yourself up for failure if you, if you think, well, I'm an accountant, and now I'm going to become a film director. Well, you're just going to fail, and then you're really, you know, then you're really going to be in trouble. It's got to be something you can do. It's good to have challenges. It's good to say, in two years, I'm doing this. But it's got to be uh, reasonable and practical. So everything depends on where you are in life. If you're in your 20s, you have much more room uh, to make an adjustment, and the, and the strategy changes. And times it, have changed. You know, you you yeah. said earlier uh, about how how the you know our, our skill sets are different. And back in the day, I and mean, this is this is still common if you're in the trades. But back in the day, if you were a shipbuilder, you did an apprenticeship. If you were a sculptor, an artist, if you built cabinets, you did that. That is less so now. Um, yeah. And you know, my question is is with apprenticeships, is that still a, a reality in this workforce? Is that something that you can take on? I know it, it's different if, depending on what stage of life you are, but has the economy and, and uh, technology and, and just the world workforce, has it changed so drastically that, that we don't have time for apprenticeships anymore? Well, you have to have time. Look, the human brain did not develop in the last 30 years since the internet was invented or whatever. It yeah. was invented, the human brain evolved millions upon millions of years ago and it has a, a what i call a certain grain to it and you're not going to overcome it you're not going to change how your brain is wired and the only way to master a skill set is through the actual grinding practice and the tedium of it the 10,000 hours none of that has changed so the world is faster but there, and there are disadvantages, which I said earlier, but there are advantages. And I have a chapter on the apprenticeship, which I feel like is essential. But it's not an apprenticeship in the traditional sense. Right. Yeah, sometime, for some people, there are traditional apprentices if you're going to be a welder or you're going to work with your hands, which is a fine uh, career. I have nothing against people who yeah. work with their hands. In fact, I celebrate that. But 
today, um, it's not going to be necessarily going to a school. It's a self-apprenticeship. And you have the power now through the internet to train yourself in all kinds of different fields. If you, uh, you know, music is an example, but there are all kinds of tutorials on YouTube or podcasts or wherever where you can teach yourself incredible skills. It's always better to have a real teacher, but a lot of us can't and we're busy and we have busy schedules. But you can self-apprentice yourself through the internet, through this insane amount of information that has been accumulated with all these people teaching incredible skills at your fingertips. But none of that will be of any use to you if you're not disciplined, if you don't know how to go through with the apprenticeship. In that chapter two of my book, I show you how you need to approach that self-apprenticeship, how you need to be patient, how you need to overcome um, your frustrations, how frustration is a good thing for you. Um, how you have to trust the process, how repetition is slowly building something up in your brain. you got to know that, but you have this insane amount of resources at your fingertips. It's not just the Internet. You've yeah. got all kinds of people teaching things out there in the world that is just waiting for you like a, a feast you can have. Um, so there's really no excuse, actually, for not, for not following this path. I'm just there. The book is there to provide you with some guidance. Yeah, and it, it does a great job of that. And and you're absolutely right. I mean, we there's never been a better time in in human history of of basically knowing mostly anything you want to learn, whether it's yeah. a, it's a barroom trivia question or or a family argument or actually watching a master uh, guitar player and learning step by yeah. step and 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 having that opportunity. So the the the, the skills are out there, and you really do. Um, a great job of kind of sharing step by step. What's the one area that you find during the apprenticeship process where people um, need to get over a hump? Like, what's one area that that uh, that they struggle that uh, that that can be avoided with uh, with some steps? Well, um, it depends on where your apprenticeship is happening. Um, let's say you're uh, in an office because you know everything is different. So if you're working in an office now, that's your apprenticeship. Uh, you just started a job. Um, your impatience to impress people with how great you are yeah. is a terrible impediment. Your focus is at that point is, well, I got to get attention. I got to show the boss that I'm brilliant. I got to get people to like me. And what and, and that's going to it's going to just make it impossible uh, to really learn what you need to learn. You're at your job. Your goal is to learn skills. It's not to be liked. It's not to be popular. It's not to ingratiate yourself with this person or that person. It is to learn skills and accumulate skills. So for that, you need to understand that you need patience and you need a plan. And you need to say, all right, in a year, I'm going to start impressing these people. But before that, I'm going to observe. I'm going to observe very closely what it is that is considered successful in this office, why certain people are good at what they do and why some people are bad. Um, I'm going to spend that year practicing and practicing and getting good at certain skill sets. I'm going to maybe expand and learn several things that are not necessarily in my docket, things I'm not supposed to learn, but are going to uh, add to, to that skill set. So your whole approach when you first enter a work, an office has to, has to reverse itself. It's about not about money. You don't join, a, a, you don't take a lucrative job because that's what's not a, 
The gold in life is learning and skills, which will pay much more than a big paycheck when you're 23 years old. So your whole mindset has to change. And the other thing that's a big impediment is knowing when to leave, knowing when the apprenticeship is over. You're 29 years old. You've been in seven years at this job. Now, traditionally, seven years in the past was the length of an apprenticeship back in the old days because that actually people have have studied this, that that actually translated to 10,000 hours. You've been at this job for seven years and you're loath, you've got an idea for a business, but you're reluctant to leave it because you've got used to the paycheck, the security. At some point, you got to break out on your own. You got to start your own business. You got to realize, okay, I've got, I've learned enough. I've got enough skills. I've got some confidence. I can do it on my own. I can leave the, the nest here and, and launch what I wanted to launch. A lot of people are too afraid for that. So that's another big impediment. I could go on, but those yeah. are a couple examples. But I, it, it's such a, there's so many great examples in the book as well, but it just really is about in those early stages of taking on that new task, that new that new role, that new goal or, or, or job, um, learn. Learn to do what you're supposed to be doing, and then everything else will fall into place. Impress people by your skill set. And so you walk through that. So the, the next stage, it kind of walks into something um, that's near and dear to, to Ken Blanchard's heart. One of, uh, one of his most recent books is he's um, really looking at what his legacy is going to be is sharing more and more about the value of mentors. And that's a key step for you as well. And so when I talk to him and I, and I ask the same question for you, it's not always easy to get someone on board, you know, on the, on the Chad train, you know, to, to, to come on and, and help me. So how do you go about choosing or how, 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 what's the right way to, to, to bring a mentor into your world and into your development? Well, I think of it, look at it this way. Um, it's not the same thing as a teacher. It's more intimate because it's usually one-on-one generally. So I say look at it as your second parent. Um, you didn't get to choose your parents. Usually they're pretty damn good, but sometimes they're not so good. But now you've got a chance to choose your second parents. And it's more like that kind of relationship um, because of the, the more intimate connection, the one-on-one nature of it. You're not just simply learning. Let's get away from these. these it's not purely technical. It's not like they're imparting how to do A, B, and C. We're animals. We're social animals. We absorb people's energy. We pick up their style, their way of thinking, things we can't really verbalize. So this has to be a connection between the two of you that's not just, oh, this person makes a lot of money, they're fabulously successful. There's an identification between the two of you. I talked in the book, I interviewed some contemporary masters mixed in with the historical examples. And there was a young a woman who was a brilliant, brilliant scientist in Yoki Matsuoka, who's a robotics engineer. And uh, she was accepted at MIT um, in their robotics lab, which is the biggest, the most prestigious robotics lab in the country. And she needed a mentor. And the person she chose, I can't remember his name off the top of my head, was this man who was like the the faculty rebel. He had long hair. Nobody else liked him. He was brilliant, but he was not well-liked. Well, she was a rebel. She grew up as a tennis player in Japan, and she modeled her tennis playing over John McEnroe and Andre, Andre Agassi, and she liked 
people who were rebellious, which is very unusual for Japanese culture. So she thought, this is the kind of person I want to be, someone who's iconoclast. There was that kind of connection. So it's not necessarily going to be that direct, but you're saying there's an emotional component. It's not just about technical things. It's not just they are brilliant, they have a lot of money. A lot of uh, mentors can be can be a negative experience. They, they're very arrogant. They make you feel very inferior. They use your labor for free, and they, and they don't let you go off on your own, and they can be very domineering. So you've got to choose wisely. It's not just anybody. Now, I know sometimes you don't have that choice, but there are always usually some kind of choice. So if you have three people in your department in, at, at university or three people at your job, uh, you choose the one that there's more of an emotional connection where you say, I want to be like that person in 10 years. They've got a style that's similar uh, to my own. And don't think, don't be intimidated. Yeah. Uh, I know because I've been a mentor for uh, my most famous mentee, uh, was is Ryan Holiday, who's an extremely uh, successful uh, writer right now, um, has several best-selling books out, um, and so it's a very satisfying relationship for the person who's the mentor. But don't feel intimidated. Actually, people want to be a mentor. Yeah. It's like being a father or a mother again. It's a very satisfying relationship. So. If, once you target that person, like, this is someone I think will be a really good mentor for me, don't be intimidated. They actually might be uh, more open to it than you think. But um, most importantly, this is like a relationship that's more than just business, and you've got to choose it very wisely. Yeah, and it's uh, and it kind of is the prize at the end. You know, it, it kind of, uh, if, if you reach mastery and you're, and you're at the top of your game, why wouldn't you want to then turn around and impart that knowledge with other people? So it's a, it's a good opportunity to give back and also create mastery in others. Yeah, and the mental relationship, you know, I tell people the bad news is that there are no shortcuts to mastery. Um, it could take 10,000 hours to be really good. It take 20,000 hours to become like a Steve Jobs. That's the bad news. Yeah. But the good news is that with a mentor, it's the only shortcut available because you're able to get much more intense learning. That person has made mistakes and they can say, look, don't fall, don't do that because that'll waste a year of your life. I wasted a year of my life. I don't want you to do that. Follow this. So they can also give you uh, real-time feedback on your performance, which is invaluable. You've been doing something and you've been doing it wrong and you could spend two years doing it wrong. Or no, they're going to tell. So it's, it's the most intense, concentrated way to master any kind of skill. So uh, you, you really need to, to try to get someone like that in your life. Yeah, I like that. It's, it really is. It's creating shortcuts. Doors are open. Curtains are pulled back. Uh, trails, you know, paths that are told to be avoided. So you're right. It, it kind of speeds up that process. So let's move into what I felt like, uh, what I feel like in the book is one of the most important parts of it. And it's around attitude, you know, and, and, and what you, I, it's, you know, the attitude that you bring to the workforce, you bring into your social setting is so vi vitally important. You call it so social intelligence. So let's dig into that. I mean, we can have all the mastery in the world at a, at a certain field, but if we can't relate with other people very well, it's, it's not going to be a, a, a good life. You know, it's not going to be a life well lived. 
yeah, you're going to have a miserable life because we're social animals. And I have an example in the book of this brilliant um, doctor in the 19th century, Semmelweis, Isaac Semmelweis, who had essentially invented a form of immunization. But he was so bad with people. He was so arrogant and pompous and full of himself and irritating uh, that his life was ruined. And, and, and he died at an early age penniless because he didn't know how to get along with people. And the counterexample I use in my book was Benjamin Franklin, who was the great master at understanding and how to work with people. Um, he was a polymath. He mastered several fields. He was a great scientist, a great writer, all sorts of things. And he realized at a young age uh, that he had actually very bad people skills. Uh, he, he was on the path towards irritating a lot of people because he thought he was so young and precocious and brilliant that he took a step back and he said, no, I've got I've to approach this. Look, I approach learning a certain way. When I want to learn math or science, I realize it's going to take a certain process and steps. Well, I've got to approach people in the same way. It's like an art or a science that I have to learn. Essentially, it's a skill I have to learn. Well, that's what the approach you want to take. Um, you can't just rely on your hacking or your coding skills to make it in computers. It can get you pretty far. Mm. But at some point, you're going to have to work with people. And if you don't know how to do that, it's going to be a real limitation. So the, the idea is look at it as a skill. It's not something people are born with. Oh, yeah, there are some people who are more gifted at it at birth. I, I don't deny that. But it is a skill that anybody can learn. So here are the rudiments. Uh, when you're in social interactions, stop thinking of yourself. It's a natural tendency. I have it. We all have it. You're insecure. You're worried about what people are thinking about you. You're practicing in your head what you're going to say next to impress them. You're not really listening. You're not really observing. What you need to do is to have the ability... <clears throat> And you can train yourself, and I show you how to do it on a very step-by-step uh, -step way to not to actually learn how to focus on what people are saying, to pick up the signs, to study them without that internal monologue, to look at their nonverbal communication. I have a, my new book, an entire chapter devoted to that whole language that so much of us don't even pay attention to. The moment you stop thinking in your head about what you want to say and what you want to do, suddenly you observe people and you see little gestures, micro-expressions, little turns of phrases, the tone in their voice, this whole other language that shows you what's really going on. You need to be able to develop uh, observation skills and then kind of take that onto a higher level and see certain patterns of behavior. I have in my new book, but it's related to this chapter that we're talking about, a whole chapter on character and how people have a character. And, and that character is filled with patterns that show that they repeated throughout their lives. And it reveals whether they're a good person or a bad person. And you're not observing that because you're not looking, you're not paying attention. Knowing, being able to gauge people's character means you will not hire that bad apple who's going to ruin your life. You won't partner with that person who's lazy and is going to you know, take from you. You'll know how to judge people's character. This is a lifelong skill 
that yeah. is will pay endless dividends. And please don't ignore it. So I devote a very large chapter to it. You, you really do, and it, it it really resonated with me. I think there's some some incredible nuggets there, and you know little things like you know you. And I think as you get older, you start to learn some of these things. You start to realize what other people are thinking about you is really none of your business and shouldn't matter. But, you know, however you're wired for conflict or personality or communication, you can bring a different persona into the workplace or into your, your relationships. And you can kind of redefine who you are in the workplace. So I think that's a, a wonderful one of my favorite chapters. Let's kind of dig it. We've got the last two pieces of this puzzle. And I feel like we're kind of at the master's level in the process of mastery. And, and it's kind of putting these things into action. So where do you take all of these skills? You've done your 10,000 hours. Hopefully you're getting towards that 20,000. You're, you're building your persona. You're communicating better. You've got a mentor looking out for you. Where do you take all this and go forward? What's the next step? Well, look, it's, it's very simple. Uh, if you do it right, the first four steps, let's say you, you figure out what you were meant to do in life, which is the life's task. You go through an apprenticeship your seven years, your 10,000 hours, whatever it is. You've worked with a mentor to kind of focus that. You've got decent people skills. And as you say, you've crafted a persona. You know how to be a, a good social animal. Okay, you've got all that. I'm, I, I swear the, the, the next two phases will actually occur quite naturally mm. um, because ideas will start coming to you. You're going to start becoming creative. The only impediment as I mentioned earlier, is your fear. Your fear that, okay, I'm, I, I'm not good enough. I'm not ready for it. I'm going to start next year. I'm going to start that business next year. I'm going to write that book next year. It's always next year. So it's important to, re to, to at some point cut yourself loose and be willing to fail. Um, I have a chapter or a story about that uh, with uh, Henry Ford, the great inventor, automobile maker. Um, and basically, to be an entrepreneur, you have to learn how to fail. You have to fail. You have to fail two or three times or more to learn what it means to really succeed. So fear, of being afraid to start that business or write that book is, is your major impediment. If you can overcome that and now go ahead and launch whatever it is that you're going to do, it's going to start happening. Things are going to start clicking. Um, Ideas are going to start coming to you. Uh, the chapter five is about creative, creativity and creative energy. And I give you some clues as to how to make, to maximize the ideas that you've accumulated. Um, think of it this way, that your brain is now filled with all of this knowledge. And what you want to do is now connect all of that knowledge into some way that's new or interesting. And I give you ideas about how to loosen up. I, it's kind of like yoga, yoga for the mind. Yeah. The, as we get older, the mind gets rigid. We start depending on particular ideas, particular paths. All right, here's some clues as to how to loosen up the mind. But the main thing that you've got to do is get over your, your fear of failure and take that next step and experiment and even fail and in the process learn. That's really the, the next phase. And you'll, if, you, if you go far enough in this process, you reach the sixth chapter, which is mastery. You've been creative. You failed. You started your own business. You're in your 40s or maybe even your 50s, and suddenly you're on a whole other plane. I mean, look at someone like Steve Jobs as, as, a, as an example that everybody knows about. He, in his 20s, um, 
basically was with Apple, which he had started with Wozniak. Um, and it was his apprenticeship. Um, and he failed. He was terrible with people, terrible manager. He was very arrogant. And he wasn't great at business. And some of his ideas were, quite frankly, quite bad. And he invented a computer called Lisa, which was one of the big duds in technology. And then he went on to start his own computer, Next, which was also a big dud. And then, you know, he wasn't going anywhere. And then finally, Apple rehired him in 98 or whatever year it was. And now all of those years of, of trying things, he had mellowed and he had learned so many skill sets. He was so much on a higher level when it came to design that he was ready to put it all together on a much higher plane. When you reach that level, you're intuitive. You have ideas. So something like the iPod, which was maybe one of his first really major inventions away from the personal computer, all came to him in an intuition. He, it wasn't like he consciously thought of it. That's the power you're going to have if you take the time and grow through all of this process. You can't hurry it up. You can't suddenly make yourself creative. You can't suddenly make yourself a master. I talk in the book how some people think, wow, you know, if I'm a musician or a writer, if I drink a lot of alcohol or smoke <laughs> or take some drugs, I can suddenly be very creative. But it's not really creative. It doesn't last. You wake up in the morning and you read what you wrote and it's actually pretty bad. The really creative people um, have all of this stuff going on in their brain, all of these neural connections that are taking place because it's based on so much experience and knowledge. And I just want people to understand that you will get there. You will have that immensely gratifying moment of ideas coming out of nowhere if you are patient and you go through this process. Yeah, I think I think one of the worst disservices for us is is that thought of an overnight success. You know, you you, it's it's in largely it, it's not true. You know, you we didn't get to see you know Jimi Hendrix in his bedroom with his fingers bleeding, struggling to play the guitar. We didn't get to see right. master writers. Um, their you know their first novels didn't see light of day because they weren't no. ready. Um, and just like us, whatever path we're on, uh. We need to uh, we need to not put out great stuff or, or not have great ideas in order to get um, to the point where we were we're firing on all cylinders. And like you said, I the way I read the book and the way I've taken it is you have to earn your way to chapter six. And when you get there, look out, right? Yeah, I mean, um, uh, you didn't mention it, but I also wrote a book called The Fiftieth Law with Fifty Cent, uh, who happened to be a big fan of my books. Oh yeah. Um, and it's a kind of a, it was an interesting for me because, you know, rappers uh, have a problem because you could get successful early on in life, 18, 19 years old with a song, and then usually you flame out. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting that people don't, they think of musicians, particularly as you mentioned Hendrix, wow, they're just, they're just prodigies. It just came naturally to them. But um, I spent hours and days and months with 50 talking about his life, etc. The 50th Law is a book about the relationship we have to fear and how overcoming your fear and fears in life will make you all the more powerful. And he approached music as a discipline. And um, he spent years um, studying the, the best rappers and the business side of it. But nobody sees that. They only see the persona, the success, the bling, you know, 
but they don't witness it. You, you, you said it yourself. They don't see the hours of, pr- of practice and the discipline that goes into it because it's not as sexy. But actually, discipline is sexy. Um, the discipline that a Tiger Woods or a Michael Jordan or any great athlete goes through now shows up in god-awful, incredible skills that make your jaw drop. Well, it is sexy, but it comes from practice. So I say in the book, you want to look at that grinding quality as actually something really exciting and not something tedious and frustrating. Well, we're getting ready to wrap up here, so I'd like to give you the, the final word just to tell us from your perspective, what's one thing you want to share with our listeners, that uh, one takeaway that they can uh, go off into the, into the world and, uh, and start using some of these habits? Well, the main thing is um, self-awareness. Um, and, and none of us will work without self-awareness. And your tendency in life is to be always thinking about what other people think about you, fitting into the group, not sticking out too much, not looking like a weirdo, and kind of, you know, just fitting in. And uh, that's going to ruin yourself, particularly in this world where there's so many opportunities for entrepreneurship, for doing your own thing. And so you need to, like, turn this around. You need to change your attitude. You need to start looking more at yourself, not in a narcissistic way, far from it. But to say, you know, I've got to stop listening to what other people are doing, what other people like. I've got to know what I like, what fits me, what uh, appeals to me, who am I, what am I good at, what was I intended for in life, and feel a little more confident to do that and not be always worried about what other people are doing. Because if you're able to, throughout your life, to be self-aware, it's, it's like the critical skill, then if you have some distance and you can say, oh, this is what I really like, this is who I am, you're also able to, to criticize yourself. Well, I didn't perform too well. I failed at this, not because of the world, but because of me. So that ability to look at yourself and know who you are and know your strengths and weaknesses is actually the critical component uh, to mastering uh, whatever it is that you want to master. And being able to bring out your uniqueness, what makes you a, a different from everybody else, is, is actually the source of your power. So I would single that out as the actual single most important life skill that I, I would uh, encourage people to, to acquire. Such great wisdom, such great insight, Robert. Thank you so much for your time today. How, if people wanted to dig a little bit deeper into your world, obviously they could pick up your books, but how could people find you online? Well, um, yeah, I have uh, five books out, um, and, but my website is uh, Power, Seduction, and War. The and is spelled out, so powerseductionandwar.com. There will be links to all five of my books that you can purchase on Amazon and a link to a mastery website and to my Twitter account and to a, an email address where you can, can write me as well. So that would be the, the main source for uh, contacting me. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for your time. It's been a real pleasure talking to you today. Thank you very much for having me. My pleasure. And thank you as well, the listeners, for tuning in. If you have any feedback for us, we sure would love to hear it. Anything we can do to make the podcast grow and serve your needs. Uh, For now, I have the pleasure of turning it over to Ken Blanchard for his final minute. 
I was really excited listening to Chad's interview with Robert Greene about his concepts around mastery. And, and one of the things that came really clear to me is, and, and Robert even said this is, he thought, the number one takeaway he'd like people uh, to get from the interview is the importance of self-awareness, of being able to really know who you are and, and what you were intended to do in life. Uh, and looking at your strengths and your weaknesses. And I have found in my work with uh, servant leadership that the people who are self-serving leaders, who think leadership is all about them uh, and uh, kind of goof up organizations and people's lives and all, are scared little kids inside because they don't really know who they are uh, and they're not comfortable in their own uh, skin. And as a result, they're a little fearful, and their fear drives them to keep control and all that. And that the people who are just great at servant leadership are people who are really comfortable in their own skin uh, and, uh, and who they are. And they don't have to be the center of the universe in every particular activities. And I, I agree with Robert that it's really a journey. You know, it's, it's not something you all of a sudden, you know, wow, you know, I really know who I am and I'm comfortable with who I am. Uh, you know, I, I think it, uh, successful people, as he said, it sometimes takes years, uh, to, to really, uh, you know, understand, you know, who they are. And it's interesting in my work with Norman Vincent Peale years ago, when we wrote a book on ethics together, uh, Norman said that the two qualities you really need in life, uh, to, to have a successful life are patience and persistence. Patience is to realize that things don't happen the way you want them to do right away. <laughs> you know, uh, maybe God has a different timetable. And he said, but the second one is persistence. You need to keep on keeping on, keep on examining, keep on looking at uh, at opportunities and, and seeing where it fits in with where you might want to go in life. And so uh, uh, I just think this is a very powerful interview, and I think you ought to listen to it uh, several times and all, because I think it's, it's a journey, and it's so important that we get clear with who we are, where we're going, what our strengths and weaknesses is, and what life is all about, because when we get clear about that and feel good about ourselves, we don't have to be the center of the universe. So thanks, Robert. Powerful powerful stuff.